If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears me, excuse me, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. The seventy-two returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the the power and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In the same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. 
All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Well, have you ever wondered what you are doing here? No, I don't mean in this room. I mean, have you ever wondered why there is a Christian life? Why the Lord doesn't simply call us to Himself and convert us and then usher us into glory? Why we do not have a profession of faith in one breath and in the next we're with the Lord? Well, this morning we see here that there is a purpose that the Lord has for the life of each and every Christian. He calls each and every one of us to be ambassadors for the King. And so we see that there is a gospel work for all of us, you and me alike, to do. We see that there is a gospel mission we are called to. That to our disappointment, sometimes meets with gospel rejection. But that as we follow the Lord, we find gospel joy. Well, let's begin then by looking at the opening of chapter 10, in which we see a mission that we are called to, a gospel mission. Jesus is calling to Himself messengers to go out on this mission. This is the next logical step of what we saw last week in Luke chapter 9. You remember that Jesus there in Luke 9 described to us what it means to follow Him. He asked the question, the searching question, will you follow Me? And He described in great detail what that means for us. He gave us the cost, didn't He? The cost of following Jesus means often rejection by the world, as we saw happened in that village in Samaria. The cost of following Jesus means open-eyed views of suffering. That there is pain and suffering that comes with following Jesus. We also saw that there is an urgency and a focus that we must have as we follow Jesus. And now Jesus is on the move. Luke tells us this. He calls a group of disciples together and He sends them out, but they are sent out to where He Himself will go, you note. Jesus now is sending out His ambassadors in advance. And After he has done this, he calls together the disciples and he takes 72 of them and he sends them out two by two to go out into these towns and villages. Now, there is some discrepancy here about the number of disciples. Some of your translations may say 70. Others of your translations may say 72. There's a reason for that. It's because... The Bible has 
thousands and thousands and thousands of ancient manuscripts as opposed to other works that we do not doubt their authenticity like Caesar or Cicero or Homer or Plato of which we might have two or four or on a really good day, 20. You see, in these thousands and thousands of manuscripts that were produced, there were some copyists that wrote the word two next to 70 and others that did not. So when someone comes and challenges you and says, you know, there are errors in the Bible, there are differing manuscripts, you can say, well, I don't know about errors, but you're right, there are differing manuscripts. There is this one place where it says Jesus had 72 disciples and another place where it says he has 70. Now you tell me what difference that makes to you and to me or anything. Right? You see, here we have an example that even where there are slight differences... It makes no essential difference to the truth of God's Word. Some like to see 70 as the number because it is full of symbolism. There were 70 nations at the Tower of Babel rejecting God. 70 is a very well-known number in the Bible. It's a number of elders. It's a number of prophets in various places. Others will take 72 because they feel it's the more difficult reading. But in either way, we have to understand it's not critical at all. The main point that the Bible is getting across to us, the main point that Luke is making, is that anything we might have thought from reading chapter 9, that only a select small few apostles are meant to go out and take the message of the king, is wrong. That Jesus now is gathering to himself a great body of disciples, and he is sending them on the same mission that he sent his apostles. He sends them out two by two that they might have accountability one with another so that they might have encouragement. When one is down, the other can encourage. Jesus had sent out the apostles before, but now he sends out ordinary disciples on this mission. This is important for you and me, isn't it? Because you see, if we're honest with ourselves, we quite rather like being able to dodge this kind of work. We like to say to ourselves, you know, there are missionaries out there. We can pray for them. They can go visit. They can bring the gospel. We've got a pastor. He can preach the gospel. He can talk about the Bible. And if someone comes to us with questions, we can take them to our pastor. And he can handle that. But you see, the text here doesn't give you that option. The text says is that ordinary people are ambassadors for the king. Ordinary people like you and me. We don't have to be called to be an apostle. We don't have to have anything special about us. Just by the fact that we are followers of the king. We are ambassadors of the king. The same Lord who calls us to himself is the Lord who calls us to go out with his message. And when He sends us out, He sends us with a provision. You see this? He provides for us just like these disciples. There are four things He provides, and in typical preacher fashion, I will help you to remember them by making them all begin with the same letter. The letter P. The first thing that we are told is this very famous verse. 
If I began it, you could all finish it. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, we see here first a perspective on the mission. We have to understand the need that is before us. There is much work to be done. Now, you understand what this means. The harvest is plentiful. This is especially for our our young people. Especially our young men. You know what this is like. When dad comes to you and he says, well, we got a full day ahead of us. It's a lot of work in the yard. Got to clean up the garage. Got to do some work in the house. Got to do some shopping. You better block off 12 or 14 hours. And you think to yourself, we're never going to get this done. It's going to take 12 or 14 days, right? The task itself is daunting before us. But don't just see Jesus saying that. When He says the harvest is plentiful, He's not just saying, buckle up, there's a lot of work to do. He's saying there is much opportunity. And we need this now, don't we? Because we live in a day and an age in which we see the Christian faith, the church itself, as shrinking. As it being harder and harder to share our faith. Less and less people being interested. If the Christian life for us were a set, it would be growing darker and darker and darker before our eyes. And sometimes we would simply try and hope that that last candle would not burn out before Jesus comes. But you see, that's not what Jesus says here. He says the harvest is plentiful. Be optimistic. Be encouraged. Be active. He says the laborers are few. I don't even have enough laborers now to pull in the harvest. You can't do all the work before you. When was the last time you thought, I can't possibly share the gospel with as many people as need it? If you're like me, you're more along the lines of, I wonder if I can get the courage up to share with one or two. You see, the perspective here is that there is a great need and that it is work. Work may be a four-letter word, but it's not a foul word. Jesus says it's hard work sowing the seeds of the gospel. It's hard work gathering in the sheaves, as it were. There is no time at all to be lost. This is our purpose, every single one of us. As you sit in these chairs this morning, this purpose is for you. If you doubt it, you can remind yourself. You can open your bulletin up to the front page. And you can see the mission statement of Christ Church. It is to make mature disciples who will worship and glorify the Lord. You see, being a part of the body of Christ, being a part of God's church, makes you an ambassador, a laborer in the field. So the first provision is perspective. The second provision is prayer. Because we might ask ourselves, if the need is so great, and if the laborers are so few, what can we do? Well, maybe we should start a training program. Everyone can go to seminary. Maybe we need to organize everyone better. Well, training is good. And organization is good. But Jesus says that's not where you start. Do you see that? Look with me 
at verse 2. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. To whom? To the Lord of the harvest. To send out laborers into the harvest. You see, the first answer we must have is not more work. It is not better skill. The very first place that we start is with the Lord. For you see, unless the Lord works, all our work is in vain. We are called to go to the Lord to pray, to pray particularly that He would send laborers into the field. Not general vague prayers, but prayers that He would send laborers to labor alongside us. And we are to pray earnestly from the heart. This is what we need. Are you praying today that the Lord would send laborers into the field? That's something each and every one of you can do right now. The Lord Jesus Christ calls us to this. God provides perspective. He provides prayer. The third thing He provides is protection. Look with me at verse 3. He says, Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Now, Jesus is not going to sugarcoat anything. He doesn't preach or speak in cliches. Jesus, dear Christian, never promised you a rose garden. He promised you struggle and strife and opposition. And do you see how he does this right here before they go out? He says, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. There's danger here. Sharing your faith is dangerous. Now, there are different kinds of danger, aren't there? Sharing your faith in Sudan may get you killed. But there's a risk even here, isn't there? Sharing your faith could mean that your neighbor won't talk to you anymore. Or that someone at the office will seek to undermine you. Or that one of your supposed friends at school might start making fun of you and pick on you. You see, there's a cost to following Jesus. And He wants you to know it. And so, what He wants us to understand is that there is a provision that He gives, a protection that He gives to us. And in this story, it becomes very sharp and clear. Because you see, He is sending them out on a short-term mission. This might actually be a proof text for short-term missions. But He's telling them they're going out on a short-term And so because of this, they shouldn't worry about anything to eat or anything to wear or where they will even live. He's telling them, you have to depend on me for the most basic necessities of life. Now, this doesn't mean that we should not provide for our missionaries and tell them to go find what they can to eat and where to live. But what it does say is in this short-term context, Jesus can say to them, you must focus entirely upon me and I will provide for you. Do you trust the Lord to provide for you today? You see, because He will. Perhaps not in the way that you desire it to be. But He has promised that in the midst of this dangerous, risky life that He has called you to, that He will indeed provide. The fourth thing that Jesus provides for us is a purpose. He says to these disciples, go out and go into these homes 
And don't bring anything with you. And they will be faced with a decision. You see, if he had given them money for a hotel, it would be much easier point of contact, wouldn't it? It would start with a commercial transaction. I'd like to rent a room. Oh, sure. Why are you here? Well, it's good that you asked. Jesus sent me. Oh, well, maybe you can come down and you can buy dinner in our restaurant and we could talk a bit about this. Sure. No, you see, Jesus makes the decision much starker. It's, hi, we're here. We don't have anything. Would you mind providing for us? And we'd like to speak to you about the Lord. And so immediately there is a purpose to their mission. A decision is required by everyone that they come up against. They have to be focused on the mission itself. They can't be thinking about all of the things that they can do. No. And the other thing that is very encouraging is that Jesus says to them that you will have some success. You will go into homes and you will talk about the Lord and the peace of the Lord will rest upon them and you will know success. And by the way, if it doesn't succeed, if they don't receive the peace of the Lord, it will rebounce back to you. It's a win-win situation, Jesus says. Go and share your faith. This is the gospel mission that Jesus sends them and you on. The second thing we see is, to our surprise, gospel rejection. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say the following. Now, messengers, Jesus says, are not always well received. This is discouraging to us, isn't it? We would like to see nothing more than success. Perhaps you had the experience of being discouraged as you tried to talk to a friend or a loved one or a neighbor about the Lord, only to be met with, well, that's good for you, but that doesn't really work for me. Now, I really don't want to talk about things like God in the Bible. No, no, thank you. I don't need that in my life. It's like someone just sucked the air out of you. Isn't it? Well, it doesn't just happen to people in the pews. It happens to the pastor, too. When people come and visit and don't come back. When you speak to people about the Bible and what it can do for them and how the Lord Jesus Christ is glorious and they say, well, that's nice, and move on. You see... If we live our lives solely looking at the success that we have, we will be discouraged. We will give up. But you see, Jesus doesn't want us to do that. There's a realism to Jesus' instructions. Look closely at verse 10. He says, But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, do you notice Jesus does not say, But if you enter a town. He says, you are going to see failure. I guarantee it. You are going to go places and they are not going to receive you. And then he tells them how to respond. He says, what you are to do is to say to them, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. 
Now, at first, this response seems very harsh, doesn't it? Seems un-Jesus-like. Why isn't he a bit more gracious here? Why doesn't he say, well, don't you really want to think about this some more? Oh, well, I don't want to be too judgmental about you. But you see, that would be the least gracious thing Jesus could do. Because you see, condemnation is already hanging over this town. The worst thing you can do to someone who's under a death sentence is to tell them they're just fine and they should go along as they are. The worst thing that you can do to someone who's playing in the midst of traffic is they'll be just safe and fine there. You see, Jesus is saying to the disciples, you must alert this town to the condemnation that hangs over them. That people who reject the gospel do so at their own peril. And so this morning, if you are here on a bright Sunday morning, and you have not considered the claims of this Jesus, if you have not trusted in Him for your life eternal, then I say to you now, there is condemnation that hangs over your head. There is peril before you. You must trust in Jesus. You need not experience that judgment that is coming, but that judgment is coming. And you see, Jesus calls to us, each and every one of us, to face this choice and to remind others of this. We cannot have good news without bad news. We must be honest with people. We must tell them what is before them. You see, there's something else that's involved here. He's reminding even those who are out in this ministry that the importance of the mission is about one's relationship with Jesus. That's all that matters. And this is where we see that Jesus reminds them that if they are rejected, it's not really them that's being rejected. We might ask ourselves the question, as the disciples go into this town, and as they are rejected, as people refuse to receive them, who is really being rejected? You see, when we have these kinds of meetings or face-to-face opportunities with others, we take it personally, don't we? We try and share the gospel with someone and we think, well, what's with them? Aren't they smart enough to figure this out? I explained it pretty clearly. We're affronted. How could someone not believe what I'm telling them sincerely and clearly? Others of us become worried about our own failure. Oh, I used the wrong Bible verse. I know I did it again. Oh, I should have come 15 minutes earlier. Oh, if I'd only waited an extra 10 minutes. Oh, some of us give up because we say, we just don't have a knack for this. We can't do it. But you see, Jesus tells the disciples and He tells you and me that the rejection here is not about our technique, our words, or us at all. Do you see what he does here in verse 12? He says, I tell you it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. And then later on he begins to speak of Tyre and Sidon. 
He's comparing what's going on in these current towns with three places that don't exist now. Three absolutely horrible places. Sodom was known as the cesspool of morality of the world. Tyre, perhaps, is a bit less familiar to you. Tyre was a place that was known solely to be concerned about commerce, about business. They tried to play everybody off against each other so they could make an extra buck. Because of that, their wickedness knew no bounds. And they were pronounced against by virtually all of the prophets of the Old Testament. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos. Sidon was the poster child for false gods. The people who lived there worshipped all sorts of false gods. You see, what Jesus is doing is, He's telling us it's about more than the messengers. He says, you remember these three horrible, wicked towns. It'll be better for them than for the people that you visit. Why? What's so bad about Chorazin? Bethsaida and Capernaum. Were they more wicked than Sodom? No. Were they more concerned about commerce than Tyre? No. Were they more known for false gods than Sidon? No. The difference is, is that Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum rejected Jesus. You see, because when the ambassadors of Jesus went to these towns, it was Jesus Himself going with His Word. And you see, what Jesus is saying here is, it's all about Me, not you. In the failure that you see, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting Me, Jesus says. They're not rejecting your technique. They're rejecting My truth. They're not rejecting your timing. They're rejecting my commands. And in your success, it's not your skill. It's not your words. It's me that they're receiving. You see, we need to move away from our tendency to think it's all about us. All the good that's done is our success and all the bad that comes is our failure when it is really about the Lord Jesus Christ and His claims upon every soul in the world. Those who reject the message reject Him. We're just the messengers. And you see, that's why it's so critical that we bring the King's message. That they're rejecting the King. Or that they're receiving the King, not us. Thirdly and finally, not all is rejection. There is great joy, gospel joy to be found here. Look with me if you would at verse 17. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. There's a joy that they have in victory. You could just imagine. Now put it in a context that we can visualize. They come back to Jesus. They are excited. They are high-fiving. They are fist-bumping. They are congratulating each other. It's been such a great mission. Now, notice the focus 
of the 72. They make it a personal victory. Lord, the demons are subject to us. We couldn't believe it. He was casting out demons left and right. And then I gave it a shot. It it was unbelievable. You should have been there to see what we did, Jesus. Now, this is because success and our own success is an encouragement to us, so we dwell upon it. Now, lest we look at this and say, well, we're different than those people in the Bible. They're silly and foolish. They're not like us. I want you to see here, they have not completely forgotten Jesus. There's a mixture here of truth and error, a mixture here of right and wrong, a mixture here of perspective and lack of perspective. Because they say to him, Lord, even the demons are subject to us, what? In your name. So they haven't forgotten Jesus. They've just, they're off a few degrees. They need to be brought back to perspective. And Jesus does this almost immediately by reminding them of the big picture. He says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And if you're like me, you look at that and you wonder and you say, I wonder why just once Jesus can't fire off an encouragement. One attaboy? One way to go, guys? Why does he do this? It's because he's trying to make sure they see the big picture. When he says, I saw Satan fall, he is describing the fact that he knows they were victorious because he is victorious. The victory has already been won. You should expect victory. You should expect progress because Jesus has already done all the heavy lifting. It's like this. Have you ever watched a football game where a team is ahead in the fourth quarter by five or six touchdowns. Do you notice what's going on on the sidelines? Are people walking around with their heads down, the team that's ahead, all bummed out, saying, Coach, don't put me in the game. There's no reason to be in the game. No. Everyone's saying, we're going to win. Put me in, Coach. Let me do something. This is tremendous. Let me see what I can do, Coach, please. You see, because the victory's already won. There's... No pressure. And seeing the victory, what you think you can do is far greater than at the first, right? You've seen success. That's what Jesus says to you now. The victory has already been won. Go out and be ambassadors for the King. It doesn't depend on you. Jesus has already won the victory. It gives us perspective on our troubles that we know that Jesus has already won the victory and we are assured of being on the winning side. I've said this to you before. You know the end of the story. God wins. Why do you have the perspective that you could lose? Jesus has already won the victory for you. But Jesus also continues to expand this perspective for us. He expands it not only beyond personal victory. He expands it beyond victory of the kingdom. He says you should have joy in victory, but far greater to have joy in the Father. Look at verse 20. He says, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, 
that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. You see, what he says is, put first things first. The thing that is worth rejoicing in is that you know the Lord Jesus Christ savingly and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and you will live in all eternity with the Father. He says this is the beginning. If that were not true, you shouldn't be out on the mission. You shouldn't care about the success of the mission. You have to begin there. And there's a warning in here for you and for me. Because you see what Jesus is also saying is we cannot say that usefulness is conversion. Let me say that again. Usefulness for the kingdom is not conversion. You can go out and tell people about Jesus. You can go out and memorize chunks of the Bible. You can go out and help others. And if you do not know savingly The Lord Jesus Christ, it is all for naught. Jesus is saying to the disciples and to you and to me, we must first make sure of our own salvation. Everything else flows from there. And then Jesus concludes with something that helps to give us an even wider perspective. Beyond encouragement and victory. Beyond encouragement and that we are with the Father. And then He says to us, you know, all of this comes to you by grace. Look at verses 21 and 22. He says, I thank you, Father, that you have hidden this from the wise and understanding and revealed it to children. I thank you that no one knows the Son or the Father except those that you have revealed yourself to. See, it all comes to us by grace. It's not our intelligence. It's not our ability. It's not our connections. It all comes from the gracious hand of a heavenly Father. This is the greatest thing that we can know. Jesus says, you know, the prophets and kings would have given their right leg to see what you're seeing. Do you know that all that you have received is by grace. If you do, you will have gospel joy in what the Father has done. You will understand and have perspective about rejection that you may experience. And you will be emboldened to go on a gospel mission to tell others about this great King and the great things that He has done and the great glory that is found in His midst. This is what it means to be ambassadors for the King. Let's pray.